Welcome to the Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. On this episode, my guest is Daniel Glass, who is an award-winning drummer, author, historian, and educator based in New York City. Highly regarded as an authority on classic American drumming and the evolution of American popular music, Daniel is best known for his time spent as a member of the retro swing group Royal Crown Review. Daniel has recorded and performed all over the world with a diverse roster of top artists. Since 2011, he has been the house drummer every Monday night at New York's legendary Birdland Jazz Club. We talk about the concept of using deliberate practice in your learning process and also discuss how his online course, Finding Your Golden Groove, focuses on learning why motions are the best strategy for developing your groove. Let's get started. So Daniel, I've been a fan of your podcast for a number of years, and I find it to be an exceptionally good wealth of information, not only about the history of music, the history of our instrument, but I love some of your perspectives in terms of you know, how we should analyze the way we really learn our instrument and really incorporate a lot of our practice strategies. So I'm really looking forward to getting into some of those concepts today. Oh, man, thanks for having me on. It's always... Uh... You know, it's always fun to have conversations about these issues, and uh, I I do a lot of thinking about it, and I've done a lot of working with my own students about it as a teacher and as a student. Yeah, so it's a pleasure for me to be here. I'm I'm happy. I don't think I've ever done your podcast, so thank you for having me. In the industry, in addition to being a highly respected musician, you're also a bit of a renaissance man in terms of the fact that you dabble in both in education. You have your podcast. You are an author. You've written a number of different books. You are also a renowned historian in terms of the history of our instrument and the history of a lot of these different styles. And I think the combinations of the things that you do is one of the things that has sort of taken you from just being, you know, a really solid drummer into being an incredibly rounded musician. And I think that's something that you always strive to do is to really embrace the music and really connect with your audience. So looking back, you're kind of known in the industry as um, kind of a retro swing drummer, but there's actually a lot more to you than just that. I believe your background originally is that you wanted to be kind of more of a kind of like a hard rock drummer and you were in a Black Sabbath and, you know, Zeppelin and that sort of thing as well too. So what kind of brought you from that path into the path that most people these days are kind of familiar with in terms of the the retro swing yeah. genre. Well, um where to begin? <laughs> I essentially what brought me into the retro swing thing was an opportunity of, of to to be part of a of a band. Uh it was a gig opportunity and um I, you know, by the time I moved to Los Angeles, uh, I was 24 years old. I I had gotten a bachelor's degree in psychology. My dad is a psychologist, and my mom also was is in mental health field. So I thought 
generally I was, I played drums my whole life, but I thought I was going to be a psychologist and sort of follow in dad's footsteps. But um, after four years of getting a degree, all I did was play in bands in college. And when I graduated, I was, I went to school at Brandeis University, which was in Boston. And for five months after I graduated, I ended up uh, going back to studying jazz with a guy named Bob Gulati, who is a not all that well known. Uh, fortunately, we lost him, I think, around 2018 or 19. But he was um, he was a Berkeley guy who had gone to school at Berkeley in the early 70s when Steve Smith and Pat Metheny and Jocko and all those people were there and uh, studied with Alan Dawson. And he, in five months, completely blew my mind as far as um, <clears throat> what jazz was all about and the fact that it was sort of a uh, universal um i would say eternal course of study you know with rock i could wrap my brain around that and in fact the reason i went back to studying was because i sort of felt like i was stuck in a rut you know like a lot of drummers do after just not really necessarily studying for a while feeling frustrated about my playing and things like that so anyway at that point i decided music was going to be my calling and i moved to la took me another couple of years to get there uh, I spent a year traveling in the Middle East in Israel and other parts of the Middle East, took kind of a gap year. And then I had no money, so I went home to Hawaii and I spent a year earning money, basically, and, and getting my craft, beginning to get my craft together. And then I moved to Los Angeles in 94 and I went to um, a place called the Dick Grove School of Music that was sort of like a miniature version of Berkeley in Los Angeles that sadly went under couple of years after that, but it was a really great school. I studied with some incredible people, very, very high level people. And uh, um, it was a terrific place. So anyway, uh, after a couple of years of just trying to get my head together after getting out of school, I had the opportunity to join a side project of, of this swing band, Royal Crown Review, who were really taking off in Los Angeles. And I got on well with the guys. And then the opportunity arose for me to join the band properly in 1994. And at that point, I, I was really into jazz, but I really didn't know that much about kind of the earlier styles, swing music and rhythm and blues music and uh, early jazz and, you know, rockabilly and some of these other things. So I kind of got a crash course in those styles. And, and through that, I, I at first I just took the gig because the band was popular. And then we got signed to Warner Brothers and things really started taking off and, and it really became a full time thing for quite a few years from about 94 to two to around 9-11 really um and even after that we we were playing fairly consistently we had a whole career in europe and uh, australia in the first decade of the 2000s and we toured over there quite a bit but um i became much more serious about that stuff and one of the things that i had missed you know i graduated from college in 88 by 10 years later late 90s i was missing the academic part of my life because i had enjoyed that you know but i i so i sort of combined my desire to learn more about the music i was playing and the songs we were studying uh along with my more academic side to myself and along the way you know we, we would play all over the country and all these older drummers would show up because this was a you know swing resurgence and a mm -hmm. lot of these older guys wanted to come see what this new swing band was doing and i met a lot of great drummers who had played with very famous 
uh, artists back in the 30s and 40s and such. And so I began to interview these guys as a way to increase my knowledge and, and my awareness, and my understanding. And it sort of turned into doing research about all that stuff. And then I started writing articles and then I started writing books. And along the way, I, I had sort of two mentoring experiences that were very important for me. One was that I studied for about six years with Freddie Gruber. And Freddie Gruber, you know, was not only a great teacher, but he also had been there in the in these eras that I was attempting to cop the vibe, you know, of, of these eras. And so I, every time I asked Freddie about a drummer that, you know, was with a band that 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 we were either playing a cover or writing a song in that style or whatever, he knew them, you know, he actually had a million stories. And so the experience of studying technique with him while also throwing myself into the history and the evolution of the instrument was really setting the stage for what would happen, where I would go. And then in 98, I had the privilege of meeting Zorro, who at the time was probably one of the most popular drummers on the scene and educators. And I read his book, The Commandments of R&B Drumming, which was about 60s soul, 70s funk, and 80s rhythm and blues, or 80s R&B, New Jack Swing, whatever you want to call it, hip-hop. And I was really inspired by how his book was, it brought you the historical information, it shared the records, it talked about the drummers, but it wasn't academic. It was something that it could appeal to the average person. And so I met Zorro, and my goal became to, to produce a series of products about the eras that we were living in which was sort of pre-1960 some some overlap but you know we were really playing early jazz big band 1930s swing rhythm and blues 40s and early rock and roll kind of 50s you could sort of say that was that was the primary um crux of of the styles that we were playing and um i decided once I got to know Zorro, he was editing a magazine called Stick It Magazine at the time. It was a short-lived but very, very cool publication in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I wrote several cover stories. And so we then decided to work on a prequel to his book. So his book was called The Commandments of R&B Drumming, covered, like I said, 60s, 70s, and 80s styles of drumming. And the book we did together was called The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming. And really that was, it was my book in a sense because I was the guy that had all the knowledge. And so I used the format of his book and wrote, you know, it took eight years to get the project done, but it was, uh, it covers uh, a lot of, of that period of music that we were doing and sort of became, you know, it still sells well today, thankfully. It's been out since uh, 2009, so 14 years. Um, it's still selling. And the reason it still sells is because it's so definitive that if you are into early rock and roll, rockabilly, blues, R&B, and swing music as well, it, it covers those eras. And kind of, you know, the term blues is so, you know, everywhere. It means so many things. There are so many different uh, approaches and ways to play the blues. And I think there's there was a lot of confusion about it. So this book was partially done to kind of take all of those ideas. What about Texas blues? What about Memphis blues? What about Chicago blues? What about rhythm and blues? What about jump blues? You know, all these different aspects um, and to, to demystify them. 
So that was really kind of the project that put me on the map, I guess you could say. I just came back from PASIC. I did a clinic there this past weekend, and uh, it's my fourth time presenting. But the first time I was there was in 2009, and Zorro and I did a clinic together, and it was a pretty spectacular uh, event for me to be a part of, you know, because he was such a big star, and it kind of introduced me. It was sort of my coming out party in the in the world of, of drumming. And then I, I put out a number of other, I have five books and three DVDs to my credit at this point, working on another book. It's a lot more of a long-term project, also a historical project. But um, I just really dove in pretty hard. And my goal was to kind of carve out a niche that would not only be something that would establish me as an expert in something that nobody else was really talking about, you know, mm-hmm. to try to, you know, there's so many people that talk about funk or talk about metal or talk about, you know, whatever, um, rock, uh, double bass, you know, there was really nobody in the mainstream drumming sphere talking about these subjects. So over time, by 2011, two years later, I released the Century Project, which was a DVD that, you know, had expanded the story from the reason I called it the Century Project is because it, it 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 looked at the evolution of the drum set from essentially the end of the Civil War, 1865, to the British invasion, 1964. And that was the century in question. And the goal was to tell the story of the drum set and how what a vital role that, that instrument has played and how much it has reflected the evolution of the United States and, and the, United, the story of the United States. It's a really incredible story. And if you've seen the DVD, which I, I hope you have, um, it, it really um, tries to fill in a lot of gaps because most drummers don't know the story. And to, to humanize it in a way that it takes it out of being some kind of dry historical thing and makes it into some kind of living, breathing um, document that you know it's a progression we're still, still following. So that's how I got to be known as a as a swing drummer. Now it's 2023, my god. So it's been about almost 15 years since since the first since my commandments book came out. And interestingly, um I I have been working on these things, but the last historical book I I published was actually 2013, 10 years ago. I moved to New York in 2010 um around the time that I did the Modern Drummer Festival. And I began to get into life here. I fell in love with my now wife. And I had been in Los Angeles for almost two decades. And my really like a dream I never thought possible, uh, which was to come and live in New York, um, the opportunity arose to be able to do that. So I moved here in 2010. So I've been in New York now for 13 years. And, you know, my life has has continued in all kinds of interesting ways. And so definitely i'm still very much into historical styles of drumming the the music that i play a lot of here in new york is i work a lot um, with what are called cabaret artists which Mm -hmm. is also kind of a an odd phrase and a strange term that most people are not familiar with but it's very big in new york and it's it's really um working with vocalists in a small group setting uh it's very intimate and the, the the singers don't just get them to sing songs they they have a theme to the production and they tell a story and weave the songs together 
And I work with some of the most high-end cabaret people in the world here in New York, which has been great. I fell into a gig about four or five months after I got to New York called um, Jim Caruso's Cast Party, which happens every Monday night at Birdland in New York, the legendary Birdland Jazz Club. And uh, I literally went in 2010, a few months after I arrived in New York, I went to go sit in at this gig because I was looking to meet people. And they didn't have a drummer. It was just a bass and piano. And I went and sat in, and after the tune I played, the uh, the host said, oh, that was great, you know, stay up for the next person. And he kept saying, stay up, stay up. So I literally stayed up the rest of the night, and then I just came back every week, and now it's 13 years later. And, you know, after a few weeks, they just started paying me. So it's kind of been an amazing uh, opportunity. I get to play at Birdland every week. I mean, to me, I like pinch myself, you know. Um, it's an incredible place. And through that uh, being visible every Monday night, you know, part of what the gig is about is handling, it's, it's essentially an open mic night. And, but people like Barry Manilow and Liza Minnelli and Art Garfunkel and Kenny Loggins and, you know, uh, all the major Broadway stars um, and a lot of very famous cabaret people that most of the mainstream world doesn't know, but they're legends in this, in this uh, scene come in and they sit in and jazz singers like Kurt Elling and, um, and people like John Pizzarelli and Dave Cause. And uh, I mean, we have, you know, it's, it's not wall to wall celebrities, but there are always heavy, heavy, heavyweight people. And so through that, I've begun to work with a lot of these folks on a fairly regular basis. And, and uh, the, the leader of our trio is a guy named Billy Stritch, who was Liza Minnelli's piano player for 25 years and worked with Tony Bennett for a couple of years. And so through that, um, we were just talking about the Countess Luann. I got involved with with her, and she has she's a, one of the real housewives of New York. And you would think, what the hell does that have to do with cabaret? <laughs> and I would also ask the same question. But we could talk more about her later. Um, I guess my point is, I'm a very eclectic person. I've had a long and and really interesting career that you know, somehow never quite seems to fall into the heart of mainstream music. But at the same time, I, I've gotten to work with incredible people over the years, everybody from Gene Simmons to uh, Bette Midler to a, a woman named Marilyn May, who's 95 years old, who's an absolute legend uh, in this world of cabaret, who's been singing since she was 12. Um, I got to, you know, just do so many incredible things. Also, we should mention uh, that I have my own group that I, I started about five years ago or so, and we're working an album right now and touring over in Europe. And also along the way, I got really into education and private teaching, and I had studied with Freddie Gruber, as I mentioned, and over the years, I've kind of taken the knowledge I gained from Freddie and really turned it into my own teaching system, uh, which, you know, hopefully we'll talk about that too. Well, one of the things that I find really interesting about your story is in a lot of ways it ties into some of my own personal experiences after college, because I went to college and I studied jazz and I don't consider myself to be a jazz musician, but the discipline and the knowledge that I learned from those experiences has benefited every aspect of my stylistic career. Yeah. But one of the things that I have often found is that when you're playing shows, you're doing a lot of jam nights and open nights and that sort of thing. There's all the standards that people will play that the musicians that have to play the stuff all the time generally 
sort of roll their eyes having to place certain material over and over again. But one of the things that I've learned is that when you're playing with musicians that respect the music that you're playing and have actually learned the music that you're playing and really how it all comes together, it makes the stuff that sometimes can be a challenge much more joyful. For years, like I, I did a lot of stuff on the blues circuit and I really enjoyed that sort of thing, but I never really enjoyed playing a lot of the really old sort of traditional blues stuff. But a few years ago, I reached out to a, a, a teacher who has a great reputation for that particular genre. And I took a two hour lesson and basically she went through and she just asked me, do you know this shuffle? What kind of shuffle is this one? And she she taught me about 25 different shuffles. And I went in knowing three or four. And then I was in really inspired and enthusiastic about all of these different styles. And what I said to her afterwards was, I need you to send me a, a playlist that I can go through and I can download and I can hear examples of all of these things because a lot of the really old traditional music, the drums aren't prominent. The feel is there, the groove is there, but you can't always make out what it is that they're playing in the first place. So the more you understand about the history and how this music comes together, the more joyful it is to play and the more respectful you play that music. And that's one of the things that I've often found too, in terms of learning different styles. There are so many books out there that say, hey, you want to learn Brazilian music. Here's all of these different Brazilian groups. You're never going to learn how to play that by reading the notes off a page. Exactly. You just throw a lot of patterns down and it has nothing to do with the music itself. And so that's why, you know, I mean, in my own experiences of really digging in as a stylist and a historian and interviewing the guys that played on these records, you know, and asking them the pivotal questions about the gear and about what they were doing and, and what, what it was like and what their lives were like, you know, I got a really deep um, awareness of these things. So if you think about blues, like a muddy waters tune and, you know, um, is is completely different than like a Bobby Blue Bland kind of a tune, which is completely different from, um, you know, uh, like a Wynoni Harris kind of thing, which is totally different than a Louis Jordan jump mm -hmm. swing, which is completely yep. different from a Louis Prima thing. So, um, you know, that's what I, I, I dig that kind of stuff uh, and I always have. And that's kind of why I got hired to do this gig every Monday night at Birdland is because every song that comes up every you know and we get a wide variety it's not just people doing standards um we have people that are nashville songwriters that do more country stuff we have a lot of young kids that are into sarah Bareilles and um more modern kinds of broadway type of songs which is more of a rock thing that are they have very unusual forms um we 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 play a lot of rock and roll. A, a gal got up and did a version of Barracuda, which I'd never played in my life before. But I love the song. And um, how do you make that rock with a jazz trio? And I've figured out how to do that, you know. Um, and, you know, people want sort of 1950s Little Richard or Ray Charles, where it has to have that half swung, half straight feel, you know. Uh, we get all kinds of stuff. So number one, you have to have an enormous repertoire to be able to do this gig. You have to know music, you have to know songs, you have to know eras, you have to know styles. And I always say our goal when we 
when we do this gig is that within five seconds, what I want is for the audience to think that this is the only style of music I've ever played in my life because I know it so well, you know, and we're pretty damn good at it. And after 13 years, I can follow the, the musical director without any music at all. Most of the songs, I don't get music. Um, some of them I do, and then I have to sight read like crazy because there's a lot of very complicated, you know, Jason Robert Brown, for example, a lot of odd time signatures. There's no, um, no, it's not necessarily obviously a pop song form or an AABA song form. There's a lot of weird extra bars and all kinds of stuff that goes on in sort of modern Broadway stuff. So I agree with you 100%. And this is my message and has been on the clinic circuit, you know, for years. Uh, when I talk, when I do a clinic related to historical stuff is, is telling people that to learn a little bit more about, you know, the era, different eras of music uh, will make you so much more employable to learn about what your heroes, what they learned about. You know, if you like John Bonham, learn what was Bonham listening to and understand what he was trying to do. And then you can try to go at it the same way he did. It's going to make you it's going to make you more competitive in this very competitive industry. It's going to give you a leg up. Also, you know, if you have an original band, you can bring some interesting ideas to your drumming that other people in your genre might not think about trying. It's going to set you apart. So learning history, I always say, you know, it's not just, you know, learn it because it's good for you. You it's learn it because you'll make a better career, whatever your career is. And you don't have to learn everything, but find, you know, like open your mind and realize that, you know, if your favorite band is whatever, the Black Keys, well, music didn't start with the Black Keys. The Black Keys are highly influenced by other things, you know. I remember one of your early podcast episodes, you did an entire episode on deconstructing Rock Around the Clock. Yeah. And I loved that episode. Um, because it's one of those things that I would have just sort of passed it off in the past is just a, a like a silly little song. But by the time I got to the end of your, I think it was like a hour, hour and 15. And yeah. <laughs> I was so inspired and so blown away just by the genius of how everything came together that that's really what makes you you know appreciate music more it, it helps your listening you're now aware of the importance of everyone else in the band I, I had a discussion once with a colleague about james brown and and i said the key for james brown is everyone has a part and it's a puzzle and everyone has to play their part and it connects this puzzle and it makes this incredible music as soon as you alter the puzzle then you alter the experience because this is not jam music. This is respect your part and play your role. And then you, if everyone collectively does that, it's just going to make everything so much better. I, I once did a gig. It was a jam night. I got called up and, and in jam nights, you never really know what it is that you're going to be playing. And uh, this guitar player came up and he goes, I'm going to do an original song. I'm like, sure, no problem, because it's it's a funk tune. No problem, because it starts out with you for four bars, but it's kind of like in funky, like a Tower of Power kind of vibe. I'm like, okay, I get that. I know what that means. And then I just started playing. He counted it off and I started playing a David Garibaldi Tower of Power style of groove. He turned around. 
he smiled he nodded his head he's like yes and then we had an absolute blast because i understood the reference and one of the things that i often tell my students is that you don't have to be a fan of all the music that you hear but you have to be aware of what that music represents because there's going to be times when you're when someone's going to not give you a drum part they're going to tell you you know an experience and say this is in this particular style and if you don't know what that means then you're going to struggle so you need to expand your listening and really increase that instead sort of encyclopedia knowledge of music and experiences and it's just going to make you a better listener and an all-around better musician and as you always say much more employable yeah i mean that's a good that's a good i like that phrase because people can relate to it you know and it doesn't always mean monetarily employable not everybody is interested in making mm-hmm. a living as a musician but whatever your goal happens to be um it's going to make people want to play with you more and that was would be my definition of employable in whatever whatever your chosen you know and it also it also makes you more comfortable as a player because you understand how to adapt to the situation that you're in and make the music work the way that it's intended and that's all about you know respect and and knowledge i remember um years ago i was i wasn't always the biggest fan of ringo star then i met a, a musician friend of mine and we did a bunch of shows where we would play albums in their entirety and i ended up having to learn almost the entire beatles catalog and now i'm a huge fan because yeah. i started to appreciate the musicality of it and i and i yeah. and i figured out that it's not straight eighths and it's not a shuffle that's something kind of in between which makes it magical and if you don't play it that way it doesn't feel right but when you play music the way that it was intended then it just makes you significantly much more comfortable as well yeah agreed agreed and Ringo did so much more than just the way his feel was mm-hmm. you know in terms of the parts that he came up with um because the Beatles really were the first band ever first musical group ever to have unlimited time in the studio they changed the entire role of what a recording studio could be. There had been some bands, Buddy Holly, Sam Cooke, where they they took more time in the studio with Buddy Holly is because they were in Clovis, New Mexico, and they weren't famous at all. They were just a bunch of kids, so mm-hmm. and they were friends with the studio owner. So the studio owner was excited to kind of get into production a little bit. But I mean, that paled in comparison to what what the Beatles ended up doing. And they were able to do it because they were so powerful. No one would have ever thought that a band could simply make records in the studio and sell enough to be the world's biggest band without touring. It just wasn't really conceivable. And the Beatles said, no, we're going to do that. And if you don't like it, we'll go to another label. And EMI said, no, no, no problem, no problem. (laughs) But what that allowed was the four of them to use the studio as, as as a lab. And I mean, if you think, you know, the incredible stuff they did, the richness and the fullness of the records and the the production and quality that Sgt. Pepper's with 90, I think there's 93 instruments used in Sgt. Pepper's and it was all done on a two track recording machine. I mean, it boggles the mind really. And it still sounds so amazing today. You know, amazing. It sounds like it was, could have been recorded yesterday. (laughs) So, you know, that's, I mean, so Ringo was certainly a big part of that, uh, of being part of that. And the this, you know, all the, 
producers, you know, the Phil Spector's, the Brian Wilson's, the Wrecking Crew in LA, and, you know, the guys in New York, everybody was listening for that next Beatles record and then copied, you know, all of the sounds um, and, and copied all the production techniques or tried to reverse engineer them. So, um, yeah, Ringo for so many reasons, you know. You know, it's about creating that musicality. And the, some of the things that he did were incredibly simple. But if you change it, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And it, it also really experimented a lot with sort of textures. And one of the things that I have found over the years is like most drummers and most musicians, when you start out, you want to go through, you want to first get some fundamental skills. Then you want to play complex, fancy things because that's the journey that most of us go through. And I remember, you know, I'd been playing, you know, I think about 25 years at this point, and I've been playing quite regular on the weekends in a classic rock band. And I remember being at a show and just kind of like hitting my drums. And I had a reputation at the time for hitting pretty hard with pretty good technique because I, I, I had an educated background. But I found at one point in a, in a club and I got a little distracted and I kind of thought, you know what, I'm hitting this Tom really, really hard and I'm not actually getting any more sound out of the drum because I'm hitting it harder. So what would happen if I hit the drum at half of the volume that I'm playing at and I hit the drum and it sounded better. And then when I would go home at the end of the night and, and I wasn't fatigued and it made my grooves sit better and it just made everything much more relaxed because I wasn't trying to take a hammer and kind of build the foundation of this. I started to realize at that point, they would say, you're the foundation of the band, but you're not just the foundation of the band. You're the foundation because you're they rely on you to kind of hold the house together, but you're also the painter. You're the one that actually goes through and has to paint the walls and has to go through and and make everything flow and and have an elegance to them as well. And so at that point, I really started to reevaluate my own playing and I started to realize, hey, wait a second, um, I have to start playing more with more dynamics and I have to start kind of really figuring out how to make the motion of my playing much more effective. And I know that's the thing that you really tend to promote is it's not so much about the complexity of being a musician. It's about the motion and how you want to kind of have everything flow to make things work for you. So I'm um, going back a number of years ago. I was a student of Dom Familiero's for a number of years. And I remember basically with him, I went back to the beginning and I went back to here's how you hold a drumstick. And he taught me all of the different uh, grip techniques, uh, you know, your your uh, match grip, your French grip, your American grip, your German grip. And so we talked about this stuff and it made me aware of a lot of the things that I was always doing. But I then started to focus more on how I was doing them and what was working and what was not working. And so I basically did whatever he told me to do. And I dedicated years of my life to going back to the beginning and really working on the motion of, of how these things work. And I got more power with significantly less effort. My groove got significantly better. It made playing music much more joyful and and I think that's one of the things that I know you do exceptionally well is it's not really about, you know, what to play. It's how to play 
and why. So we need to kind of ask ourselves those questions. It's, you know, too many times you're given a sheet of exercises and say, play these exercises. Well, why am I playing these exercises? And what is what is the purpose and how is it going to make me a better player? So I really like to kind of get into your philosophy with regards to how to play the instrument and why it's really essential that we kind of take a look at what we're doing and how we adjust our technique to really add more flow to what we do. Well, um, so you, you know, Dom was kind of your mentor who took you back to the basics and re, you know, you kind of had to relearn everything. I, I had a similar mentor in Freddie Gruber. Um, I spent a year in music school. It was only a one year program. I would have probably spent more years, but it was a one year program. So Freddie, had a kind of, you know, like so many great teachers had a sort of a similar approach. He, he was his, his biggest skill set, I think, or his superpower, you might say, because a lot of people are confused by Freddie, you know, he was a mysterious character, and he wasn't always going to give you the straight answer. Mm-hmm. And it frustrated <laughs> some people. He He also was very old school. And his mindset was sort of like, he was afraid that you know, if he documented what he did, that people would take it from him and it wouldn't be his anymore. And, you know, so regardless, uh, I went to him after one year of, of being in music school. So I started in 1992, January with Freddie, and I spent about six years with him off, you know, at first quite intensively. And then uh, I joined Royal Crown Review, the swing band in 94. So less frequently for the next couple of years. But, um, as I said, his superpower was in being able to um, reverse engineer what drummers were doing and break it down into very, very small bite-sized pieces that didn't even resemble drumming at all. Uh, they they were really motions, small motions. And over the years, what I realized is what he was employing is something that I call deliberate practice, which is a term that can be used in athletics, be used in music, be used in business. And the idea is to break things down into very small pieces that are easily digested or mastered. And in doing so, you end up changing things at the cellular level, right? If you if you're just doing what you already do but you're trying to, you know, say take some kind of a four-way coordination piece and do it differently, chances are you're going to have a very hard time making permanent change because your body is so has so much muscle memory has so many different tensions and habits inhabiting the body that it's hard to um to make those kind of changes but if you set up something that doesn't even resemble drumming now i always say it kind of (laughs) works like hypnosis right where the hypnotist you know as opposed to a doctor who would tell you well you just need to have Uh, willpower, you know, and if you feel like smoking, you know, go out and run a mile or eat some carrots or go jog or whatever, you know, uh, and just have willpower. Well, most people know that doesn't really work very well. But if you go to the hypnotist, they put you under in a trance and flip some switches subconsciously. And now suddenly you don't feel like you want to smoke anymore. So Freddie stuff is a little bit like that. And when I teach, it's a little like that. I tell my students, don't try to put this stuff into practice at all. Don't even mm-hmm. bother. Just practice what I'm showing you a lot. When you go to your gigs, when you go to your rehearsals, don't even worry. Just go play. 
But what ends up starting to happen is that the change happens organically at the cellular level and suddenly things feel different, you know. So over time, what I have done as a teacher is taken a lot of what I've learned from Freddie and made it more user friendly, more easily understood, hopefully more quickly learnable and broken it down even further. And by by that, what I mean is having my students make motions without the benefit of sticks or pedals at all. Getting the body to move, the various mechanisms, the hinges, the fulcrums, to be able to understand these things. If you don't have the stick in your hand, then it really doesn't resemble drumming. And, you know, most people, if, if we can imagine that they play where their body is totally bent and their wrists are twisted up and they're riddled with tension, if you just put the sticks down, suddenly there's no tension and their body you know, goes back to moving in ways that are natural and easy. And so that's, I keep trying to break things down so that for every sort of series of exercises or every grip or every, you know, particular thing that I may be teaching about, a particular aspect of the instrument, every, or of technique, I start without sticks and without being on the pedal. And it's so instructive it's amazing like it it really helps people get to the heart of what needs to be happening or what doesn't need to be happening you know and the other goal is to help people through these means of very small bits and pieces this idea of deliberate practice where they master small things small you know uh, pieces of a larger puzzle they can begin to reorient themselves to what it feels like to be relaxed so everything is done at very slow tempos with a lot of space or very staccato motions where maybe you lift, you stop, wait, drop, you stop, wait, you finish each part of the motion so you can be in a relaxed state, you know, or, you know, the way you might move your feet. There's parallels between the, the hands and feet. And the way I've gotten it now and what I'm going to be introducing over the next, you know, probably the rest of my life is organizing everything we do in drumming can be at least if we talk about the hands can be organized into five basic motions and i call these the five fundamentals and these motions are the same i mean there's a version of them in french grip german grip traditional grip i did not learn quote unquote the american grip and i know that that really was a dom thing and his students really learned that i i don't know if i would consider that a completely separate grip or if it's, no, a, it's like a variation yeah yeah sort of a combination of maybe french and german so i mean obviously these principles would work with that too but the idea is when i if a student really comes to me and wants to get into the technique technique stuff and not everybody is wants to go that deep but for example when i studied with freddie that's what i wanted and a lot of people who come to me they want they want that complete reordering because they come out of it like like you yourself have experienced like a, a totally changed drummer and then you can move forward in a way that that's really fantastic so these five fundamentals we can kind of think of them as like the zeros and ones digital language right yeah. so everything in digital language can be built from zeros and ones uh you can think of molecules as any molecule can be built from atoms so really even these five break down to two fundamental motions, one of which is a stroke and the other, which is a tap. And, you know, obviously lots of people use those terms, but the way I use them is very specific and very organized and it builds on itself. 
And what's so cool about what Freddie did and what this stuff does is it, in, in, I'm sure the way Dom taught as well, is that it's, it's completely independent of any style of music, of any skill level. So it doesn't matter if you're a total beginner, if you've been playing for 40 years, this stuff can change your life and make you a, a much better drummer. And sometimes I actually enjoy working with beginners more because we don't have to spend, you know, a lot of time unwinding. I don't like to say bad habits. I say habits, right? Yes. Because we all have habits and sometimes they're not beneficial to get us where we want to go. Uh, and so they need to, we need to address them. But um, so for me, that's, that's where my head has been. And these five fundamentals, the cool thing about it is that it simplifies your job in the extreme, even though it isn't that simple because you have to learn them at a very, very deep level. They're not easy to learn and not easy to understand how they all necessarily fit together. But once you kind of have them together, whenever you're playing something that, that you know, you're working on and you're frustrated, you can essentially break the two hands apart, whatever, whether they're doing a rudiment or a pattern, a, you know, a, a beat or a fill. You could separate the hands and look at the job of one hand and figure out which of the five fundamentals or a combination of them that it's using. And then you can fix it based on your knowledge of those five fundamentals. And the more you know the five fundamentals, and by know them, I mean in your body, the more you're comfortable with them, then you can learn more quickly. And that's what I do when I practice. You know, when I'm practicing, I'm learning a new song, or usually I'm learning material, preparing for some kind of a performance or clinic or something like that. And if I am frustrated or something's not coming together, I can, you know, break it down to these five fundamentals. Similarly, of late, um, since about July, I've been on a very intensive practice regimen. I've really gotten back in the shed and uh, because I have my own band and I feel like if I'm going to be in New York City with my own band trying to compete, I really got to get my shit together because yeah. there are a lot, you know, I mean, the best drummers in every town in the world come here, the best jazz drummers. So um, I've gone back to things like the John Riley books, which, you know, the second John Riley book especially is very, very difficult, but doing things in the first book, but in slightly different ways to develop certain skill sets. And then, you know, thinking a lot about what I call interdependence, as opposed to independence. And that's another thing I talk about a lot with my students is that most people stop at independence. In other words, they get some facsimile of the four limbs working on a particular groove. And then they say, well, I can do it. So good enough, right? But as you and I know, as professionals, good enough is not enough. And the next phase of really learning something is you have to, um, understand how the limbs work in conjunction with each other, how to get the limbs to really be in sync so that if on beat two, several things are playing at the same time, well, what's your game plan to make that happen? You know, most drummers have no game plan. And what I like, the other thing I think main point to make about studying motion is that whereas learning patterns is a and I suppose I should step back even more because, and I just talked about all this at this clinic I did, but the whole idea of finding your golden groove, which was the name of my online course and understanding what I mean by that is I'll try to make it as simple and brief as possible. If you look through history, which I have done, 
very in a very detailed way. What we learn over and over again is that it's the job of the drummer to move a group of people from point A to point B, right? And to do so in a way that's profound. So whether you're marching hundreds of, of soldiers down a field and keeping them in line with each other, whether it's an African religious ceremony and you're taking people to a higher plane, which we might kind of think of today, the natural, uh, you know, progeny of that is, you say, gospel music, right? Yes. So, you know, through incredibly powerful groove, you're elevating people to a new spiritual place, um, you know, or whether it's dancing throughout all the years, whether it's partner dancing, disco dancing, country line dancing, I mean, to get people you know, a heavy metal mosh pit, getting everybody head banging. I mean, your your beat has to be that powerful. And everybody has an internal clock that is pretty damn on, and that's called their heart. And so even if people don't have, can't make rhythm themselves, they understand rhythm and they understand when something is good and when it is not. So the study of patterns, which is essentially, in my opinion, about 98% of all drumming education out there, you know, and yes, we need to learn patterns, but the world is living right now in what I call a pattern-based system. And the pattern-based system essentially says what you were talking about earlier, that the more complex of a pattern that you can learn, then, the, then you are equated with being a better drummer. And so the focus, whether it's in drum education, and we're gonna learn this many pages out of a book, or, you're taking an online course or you're watching videos and trying to imitate your heroes the emphasis in my in my view is is completely ass backwards certainly there's nothing wrong with complex patterns and certainly the greatest music is made with complex patterns but it the study of patterns in and of itself is not going to make us employable it's not going to help us to do the job that our ancestors have done and that we are supposed to be doing like it ain't going to do it. And even studying with a click is not going to guarantee you're going to have a great group. It'll help. You know, that's why I turned to motions and really thinking about things in terms of motions because, and so therefore I call what I teach the motion-based system as opposed to the pattern-based system. And another thing about motions that is so terrific is that at the end of the day, and this was so, Freddie was so great about this, is that what you're trying to understand is what things feel like, yes. not... You know, the study of patterns is an intellectual study. It's looking at something and trying to get our, you know, get this kind of independence. There's not necessarily thought to the ultimate goal, which is to move your audience. And the way you move your audience is learning how to move, right? I mean, there are these terms, walking baseline and shuffle, yeah. that people just sort of mention without even thinking about where that comes from and why they were named those things. In any case, I'm blathering on about all of it, but that's essentially kind of an overview of this idea of the motion-based system and the five fundamentals. It's to simplify things, to get you to feel things, and ultimately to get you, as you learn in your studies with Dom, to move in a natural way that your body wants to move, right? Instead of forcing things, like you said, hammering a nail, we learn to allow things. And the biggest, one last point I'll make, the biggest other takeaway that I try to give my students, which is kind of radical, is that I say it's all about the up. And really like the more that I teach and the more that I study, I'm more and more convinced that 
what we need to study is up. And there's sort of two kinds of up. There's an up that happens after you throw a drumstick down, which we call a rebound. That's one kind of up. And by the way, that would be a stroke, would be creating that kind of a rebound. And then there's something, the other kind of up, where we set up and then we simply let the stick fall and allow the stick to, to go down based on the perfect force of gravity and the weight of our limbs. And that's what we would call a tap, because a tap involves upward force and no downward force at all. Uh, hence the term tap, as opposed to stroke, which involves, the word involves that you're uh, pre proactive in making the stick go down. And we have to start, that's the zero and one of essentially my whole system. Once we can clarify those things and then understand to build these five fundamental motions out of those and combine them in different ways, we can start to begin to understand what made the great drummers great. What makes Steve Gadd so great? What makes Nate Smith so great? You know? And if you even, even think historically speaking, I've come up with a way to describe what American music is all about from a percussive perspective that, again, is based in historical study and it looks at the history of America. You know, why is it that American music always becomes the world's popular music? I mean, that's a big question that, again, historians answer it, but drummers should be looking at it, right? So every style of music that involves a drum set or that, that used a drum set when it was created, again, ragtime, early jazz, swing, big band jazz, bebop, rhythm and blues, rockabilly, early rock and roll, funk, soul, hip-hop, metal, you know, every one of these styles all comes from the same place. And that place is an African-American interpretation of a European-American musical set of musical constructs, right? Yeah. And what, what set part of why American music, all the styles I just mentioned, are all played all over the world today, you know, is because they feel good and they make people want to move. And this is the African element to some degree, the African interpretation of European music. And so to get even more specific, all of those styles have two elements going on in the creation of the pulse, whether the pulse is your jazz ride pattern or it's eighth notes on a hi-hat playing rock and roll, or it's a blues shuffle. So the, pulse inherent in all of those things has two contradictory elements happening. The first is it has forward momentum. It makes people want to move. We've talked about that. But the second part is that it feels relaxed and laid back, right? So you mentioned some of these things and the benefits you got from your drumming. And, you know, lots of teachers, I don't know of lots, but we, we certainly talk about that the feel needs to be have forward momentum and, and that it needs to feel relaxed. But the, the how, how do we do that? Those are two contradictory things. How do you make something have forward momentum and also feel laid back? So that's where a lot of drum teachers run into a brick wall uh, and why pattern teaching is so popular because pattern teaching, it's very easy to sort of show progress. And then a lot of those teachers, when it comes to teaching about feel, say, well, you can't teach feel, right? How many times have you heard that?
you know, oh, well, you're either born with it or you're not, or not all drummers have feel. Now, maybe some people naturally can pick it up and can feel what the music should feel like more easily, but I've taught a hell of a lot of drummers to have a great feel. And I do it in a very specific way that actually addresses that, you know, not just sort of like, well, yeah, if you want to, you know, you should just play in front of the beat. Well, what does that mean? How do you do that? You know? And if you want to make it feel like a jazz groove, what should you be thinking about there? So the idea of how do you how you create this, and I use an exercise that I call the throw up exercise, which is a horrible name, granted. <laughs> Uh, but it's a it's an icebreaker. It's a catchy name, but it em, it it embodies the two elements of what American music should do, which is the throw. We must throw the stick, but as soon as we throw it, we must allow the up to happen. Remember, I said all about the up, and the magic happens the more that we can allow the up to happen. The longer we can let the stick come up and follow it up before throwing the next stroke, so we're not dragging. That's where you get into space. And if you can eventually, when you get good enough at it, you can really just use the weight of your arm to create all the downward force that you need. And so one more point, I promise, and I'll stop talking about this, but um, I'll let you get a word in edgewise. But the idea of using gravity and the weight of our limbs to do the work for us, and this is exactly what you mentioned. You didn't have to slam so hard. You were able to if you didn't hit the drum that hard, suddenly it started sounding good, right? Yes. And learning how to just allow, that's what we're talking about, flow. And when you look at drummers who are great, it looks effortless, like a, you know, a, 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 an elite athlete or a martial artist or a dancer. There's a flow to what's going on. There's combining the motions and movements together in various ways so that you move effortlessly from one to another. Now, all the other disciplines that I mentioned, right, athletics and martial arts and uh, and dancing, you have to work on body movements. That's the whole name of the game. And here we are, drummers, going to your first lesson. Here's two sticks. Now, here's how you play a rock groove. Here's how you play a jazz groove. Here's your patterns. There is no conversation about these ideas of motion. So that's why I am a firm believer in the motion-based system, not only because it's changed my playing and made me as employable as I could possibly be. I work over 200 gigs a year in New York City, the most competitive city on the planet. And, you know, I'm in high demand. And it's not because I have a ton of chops. It's because it feels great when people play with me. People like to play with me. Audiences respond to what I'm doing in a very powerful way. So that's what I try to impart on my students. I'm not saying I'm the greatest or anything like that. What I'm saying is this idea of motion and movement and using the limbs and using gravity and just, you know, if you, if you think about the up, whether it's on a rebound or whether you're lifting up to play a stroke or a tap, if you consider the up and you get very consistent with that, and you allow the down to happen, the down will be perfect every time because gravity is a perfect force. The weight of your arm or your leg is perfect in essence. It doesn't change from day to day or minute to minute. If you can harness those things, you can get tons of sound. You can get, you can play heel down very loudly. You, you know, you can do, you can get a huge hi-hat two and four when you're playing jazz, which it should be, it should be very loud in your overall mix. Um, so that's that's where I'm at, and I'm 
I've released this first course. I'm just about to open it again, actually. So it's great we're doing this. Um, I'll probably be opening the course again on uh, around Black, what is it called? Black Friday? Black Friday, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, within the next 10 days or so. Because uh, I've only opened it twice for a week each time in the last year and a half. And then I like get busy and I'm like, I really need to open that course again. A lot of people are interested in it. So in any case, that's the find the idea of finding your golden groove. That's the name of the course. It introduces you to the motion-based system. And the course itself is a nine-unit course. Each unit has many videos. And the idea is to re- examine the most basic rock groove and it just the doot get doot get and we get into all these elements and we do exercises off the sticks and off the pedals and we slowly build things back up and then we start to plug things back in and then we look at a little bit about playing fills you know so some simple fills to get in and to get out of your groove without losing that flow and um yeah it's it's a really interesting course. We look at bass drum technique and different bass drum patterns, different bass drum ideas. One of the, the concepts I usually try and instill in my students is that, you know, they want to learn some beats and they want to learn some fills. But what I always tell them is that the fill is part of the groove. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem is that they'll play the beat, then they kind of turn the beat off, yeah. do the fill feel and then go back to the beat i'm like you know you, it should never stop or if they don't know what to do what i generally tell them is your fill should be the groove that you're playing but hit the tom rather than the snare drum right and because you what you do is that you learn how to adapt to the groove but never let the groove leave or just play your bass drum as quarter notes so that you're aware of where the time pulse is or another example that i often have said to said to students when they're when they're playing is that they're trying to like hit things and this is usually when they're early in their drumming career and an example i always give them is hey you know if you take a basketball do you do this and i grab the basketball and i kind of like i i set it on the ground and then and I lift, lift the basketball up, up yeah. and then I set the basketball. I said, you don't do that. What you do is, right. is you, you hit the basketball, it bounces up and then you take your hand and, and you don't, and you you don't, up. it brings you up with it. Yeah. And then you just tap it back down and you just, you create this, this motion and this flow. And I know in, you know, when I was a younger student, I found space to be really uncomfortable. So what happens? So the yeah. tendency for a lot of people is that they want to fill space. Yeah. Because it's awkward. And what you need to do is that you need to embrace space. Because even though you're not playing a note, there's still time going on. And that's kind of where you have to start to feel these things. And it's something that takes a level of maturity and awareness as you go through and do these things. Um, I I studied with Jim Blackley for a year, you know, renowned yeah. uh, jazz educator. And one of the things that he always does with his students is that he makes you play quarter notes at 40 beat beats per minute yeah. for 10 to 15 minutes yeah with a track in the background and then when he realizes that you're starting to get it he gives you the next exercise right. and it's incredibly uncomfortable and extremely meditative if you embrace yeah. the concept and i found what it did for me is that it made me aware of the importance of articulation and what i realized when i watched a lot of my favorite drummers i used to look at the things that they would play and say i'm so blown away by the things that they're playing and then i realized it wasn't the things that they were playing that impressed me 
it was the flow and the smoothness of how they were playing. And as a student, I went from wanting to learn how to play the complexity of what I viewed, and I wanted to make it flow the way that I would watch players. And and, and then what I also found is that when you work on the flow aspect in your playing and you really get comfortable with the motions, the things that were really complicated suddenly aren't as complicated. They start to fix themselves because mm -hmm. you realize it's the motion of what you're doing that's impeding the idea that you're trying to get across. And so for exactly. me, it's been incredibly enlightening and it's sort of changed my whole approach and taken me from being a drummer trying to learn how to play the drums into being a musician that's finding joy out of sitting behind this canvas of my drum kit and just making music. And when I got into you know, really refining my technique and really going back to the beginning, I had to be kind of directed to go back to my drum kit because you get so caught up in technique mode because yeah. you're seeing results that you have to start applying it to a different surface because on a, a practice pad it's not very loud and you start to realize how hard you're actually hitting yep. to get these responses and when you sit behind a drum set you go oh my god that is really loud and you have to adjust your your stroke and control it depending on the surface that's why i also teach taps in addition yes. to strokes because yeah. taps it's about the lightness it's about the allowing of the down you know and um Anyway, I mean, I'm sure I once got together with Alan Herman, who yeah, I don't know if you know who Alan Herman is. I don't. He's, he's out here in New York. He uh, he was Billy Martin's mentor and longtime Broadway drummer, and he was a longtime Joe Morello student, and he's kind of a technique guru, kind of a cat. And he and I got together one day, and we talked about you know, because a lot of these guys are interested in Freddie Gruber because they didn't really, you know, there's no videos really of Freddie explaining things in a in a so you're only left with freddie's students to kind of try to explain it so anyway there's a video of us talking about technique and then at the end of the day the goals are the same how you get there might be a little different or different terminology or whatever but you know physics is physics is physics you're going to be fluid and move naturally on the drums but yeah it's it seems like uh we're definitely very much of a similar mindset in understanding this stuff another conversation i had with a student you know has an opportunity to play in an ensemble uh, situation and because he was young he would often say oh i kind of get bored sometimes because everything after play is really simple and so what i said to him was what you need to do is that you need to take your focus away from the simplicity of what you're doing and you need to focus on the people in the congregation mm. and your job now is to get a reaction from them. Find yeah. someone that's not moving. And the reason they're not moving is because you are bored. Right. So what you need to do is that you need to seek them out and you need to now concentrate on playing something that's got a nice groove because the fancy things that you're playing didn't get a reaction from them. So you need to really work on trying to play a really solid, simple groove that feels good and get a reaction and make the move they may not get up and dance but if you can get a smile you've connected with them yeah and that's the job the job yeah. is to is to bring them to take them from point a to point b to bring them with you so they can have the experience the purpose of the worship band is to take people 
to elevate them spiritually, you know? So if you're, if you're, yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great, uh, talking point, you know, uh, awesome. Well, and the same thing can apply to anyone in a club setting as well, too. We've all been in situations mm-hmm. where we're sitting there going, nobody here cares. We're just mm-hmm. essentially background noise. And this became a job. Well, find someone, you know, and get a reaction from them, make make yeah. them dance. And I've played in bands before where, you know, sometimes we'll be playing certain things. We'll do our own version of them. We might jam things out. And yes, it can get a little complicated. But one of the things that I would find is that I may complicate my hi-hat parts, but I will keep the snare drum on two and four, and I'll start playing quarter notes on the bass drum, and the dance floor will be packed. And then at that point, you've got their attention. You now have the freedom to color your groove. Um, But if you are coloring your groove and they're not responding, then you have to go back to the, the, the focus and the fundamentals. And... It's not always easy to do, but it's one of the things that that you learn. You have to, you just have to be kind of respectful of the job that you're doing and the music that you're playing, and find something in it that's bringing you some joy. And that exercise, agreed, hundred percent. That exercise, um, that you know, playing at forty quarter notes. That's how I start. That's what the throw up exercise is. I do a lot of exercises at fifty BPM. The throw up exercise I do with music. Uh, mm-hmm. it, to me, it's it's the most important thing about it is to do it with music because, and pick to curate songs that really incorporate that American pulse. Because if you just do it with a click, you're not understanding the historical relevance, you know, in the background. Yeah, I, I'm a huge believer in space. I think one of the things about studying with Freddie, he didn't do the throw up exercise. That's really something I've kind of incorporated. But he did some of these other exercises where you would, you know, just release the stick over fulcrum and lift it up again at 50 BPM very slowly. And I found that that was incredibly powerful and meditative and allowed me to get into a much deeper place with what I call concentration chops, you know. So the idea that I I, I do this similarly when I have my students do the throw up exercise, I have them do it music and they say, well, how many times, you know, say, should I play along with Freddie Freeloader? Well, you know, or uh, Stolen Moments is another tune that I use. And it's it's like, how many times should you as many times as you possibly can? Uh, When I was doing this, this book, this is the, you know, the book about the blues drumming that I did with Zorro. Um, uh, The tune that was sort of my go to song, because it was so perfect in that awareness of the American pulse or in in feeling the American pulse is a song called Hard Work by John Handy, who is a soul jazz artist. I mean, he started out as a bebop artist. He played with Mingus. He's the guy who played the solo on uh, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. But uh, in the 70s, you know, when the influence of funk came in and all that, before it became smooth jazz, which is horrible, (laughs) there was soul jazz, which was great. And this tune called Hard Work is just a shuffle, and it's a nine minutes of shuffling. And the drummer is James Gadsden, you know, and one of the greatest groove monsters of all time. So I played along with Hard Work, I think by the time I recorded, because I was preparing to do the CD for the book, and I did all the, the recording of it. I think I had practiced along with Hard Work like over 700 times. I looked at my iTunes once and I I played it that many times and it wasn't a conscious thing. It just was 
I just got into this headspace where I was like, all right, what if I played it again? What if I played it five more times? What if I'm really bored with it? I'm going to play it again. What if I'm so pissed off and angry about having to hear this song? I'm going to play it again. And eventually just with that and with Freddie Freeloader, I just gave in and my ego went away, you know, and it became about just being inside the music and 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 then the idea is if you do it with music and you you become so familiar with the song you know i did a whole podcast also about uh freddie freeloader yes um which is called keep calm and learn to love jazz and i talk about that freddie freeloader is is you know first of all it's it's the most popular song on the most popular jazz album of all time so if you're ever going to pick a song that is good to play along with because people react to it, this might be it, you know? And it's nine minutes and Jimmy Cobb is just so metronomically, beautifully perfect on it. And it really, the ride symbol pattern is almost quarter notes. So that's why that's sort of the go-to song I have with the students, but then it becomes, well, you know, you've got four of the greatest soloists of all time on this. You got Miles, Winton, Kelly, uh, Cannonball, and, um, and and uh, train i mean yeah. it's like it's ridiculous you know so then you can begin to understand like how each of those guys approaches this 24 bar blues and what their personality is what they bring to it and what you know even just though you're playing those quarter notes then you know you can begin to learn the licks from their solo the way that you would learn the rock solo from your favorite you know rock tune or whatever the way you'd learn another brick in the wall solo or the Stairway to Heaven solo, that we all could sing the solo because we listen to those songs so many times. The solos are so iconic. Well, these solos are iconic as well. There was an album that uh, was like Bobby McFerrin, Al Jarreau, uh, John Hendricks, and one other person. And they did Freddie Freeloader. They made an album all together sometime in the late 80s or early 90s. And they did Freddie Freeloader, and the four of them each took one of the solos of those four soloists that I mentioned. And sang the entire solo note for note so you know it's it's worth it to butt up against that boredom against that frustration against that mind wandering and what i find is that after a while you're inside the music if you can keep this going for nine minutes then like your teacher was it black blackley is that his jim name? blackley yeah jim blackley yeah that essentially when you are one with the music and your emotion is one now you really know you you actually have internalized the flow of the American pulse, at least in a jazz situation. But also you're developing the, what I would call concentration chops, which means that now instead of being in your little drummer, drummer bubble, because drummers are in a bubble, all we think about is what we're doing. We don't, drummers again, don't are not trained to learn the names of the songs, let alone the, you know, the lyrics, what it's about, None of that, right? Or the chord changes or anything. We just ask two questions. How fast and what is the what is the feel? What style yeah. is it, right? So, you know, you've, you've got to know the song. Then I tell them, go read the book about Kind of Blue and understand who was Freddie Freeloader. What was the, what was Miles thinking about, you know? I mean, it's only a blues, but there's a lot there. So if you can kind of, I guess the end result, what I tell my students is that, you want it to be like you're floating above the band 
like six feet above the ground and that you could just train your focus on anything that you want. You see and hear everything and you could train your focus at any given point at any place in the music. Then it becomes huge and fascinating, right? Because you know the melody so well. I mean, obviously you could do it with more complex tunes as well, but it's almost better to do it with simple tune because those are the ones people tend to get bored on, right? Sort of like, a, you know, fly me to the moon or something like that. And that's been a great thing about the the gig for me, the the Monday night gig at Birdland is that sometimes we get three or four fly me to the moons in a row. And it's kind of like after every song, you got to hit the rehead, the restart button, come up with something new to do with it, something that's honoring it, but at the same time has some variation. So the audience doesn't realize that you're playing three medium tempo swing tunes from the 1950s in B flat in a row, you know? That's the challenge of blues, for example. I mean, blues is a simple art form, but it's a very profound art form. Our book is 152 pages, and it's about, you know, the blues and doesn't and is only scratching the surface, really. And every artist is going to have their own interpretation. So even like if you're doing the same essential thing four times in a row, right. everyone's going to get a give it a different color. Yeah. So you have to be confident enough in the music that you're playing and you have to be confident enough in your listening to adapt to those color changes rather than just plowing through going, okay, well, I'm doing this again and I'm doing this again and I'm doing this again. And the more you learn the music, the more you listen, the more you start to appreciate, you know, the other musicians in the band and the more you're going to appreciate your own playing because you're going to suddenly find yourself playing at a level that's higher than you may have anticipated because you've taken the time to expand your knowledge and your skill set beyond just the drumming aspect of things. And I think that's that's essential. I tell people that that throw up exercise is the most profound thing I can show them ever of anything I'm ever going to show them. That's it. And it's what I show them at the first lesson. And even very seasoned drummers, really, it takes them a minute to understand about just allowing and allowing that up to to happen. It's amazing to me, you know, how most people are trained to drive the, the nail, you know, with the hammer, like all down kind of thing. But it, it is it is entirely profound. And I've had students, you know, I say, look, just practice this a lot and this alone is going to change your playing in very profound ways and it generally does people come back after one lesson my bandmates said i was playing you know better than i ever had they're like what happened to you you know all those kinds of, of feedbacks so yeah man it's, uh, it's good stuff i remember working through stick control with dom and finished the whole book and then he made me do the whole book again with my feet so so wow. and, and it took a year to get through stick control and i basically did it every single day and i and he's like and there are no accents in stick control that's one of the problems a lot of people do is that they they tend to accent things based on what they're their dominant hand is going to be so it really works on balancing the limbs out then once we i finished stick control with my feet he went we went into accents and rebounds and i remember i think on five occasions as we're going through accents and rebounds i would send him an email going there's a mistake in the book and then i would send him another mistake and he's like you were actually 
correct. There is notation mistakes in the book because of the way things were notated. I would just find them because I was so disciplined in terms of paying attention and really trying to get the motions of these exercises mm -hmm. that I'm finding things that I'm doing going, well, this doesn't, this isn't right. And it was because it was written incorrectly but but dom had said to me one of the reasons why you're doing so well at learning these techniques is that you're really going really deep on these and you're you're not just kind of glossing through the page and i that we were having a conversation was in one of our lessons and i was playing something and he's like that last section the accent wasn't correct and so i played it again he goes no the accent isn't correct i'm like i'm playing what's written on the page and he's like oh you just found another mistake so we went through and did a notation thing and and to me it's like if i'm going to get into something i really want to get in all the way and i'm not looking for a quick fix i'm looking for the result that i want to get and it may take six months and may take five years may take 10 years but if i know by doing these things and devoting the time to this i am going to achieve the result that i want and and that to me is the, is is the joy uh, you know you have to respect the experts and you have to understand that even if you don't always know why you're doing something there is a reason for it and you have to trust the teachers that you have because they know why you're doing it and sometimes if they tell you all the information it makes it more difficult to learn so the idea is you have to embrace the concept then they will give you the next piece. You have to slowly lift the wool because otherwise people won't, they won't get it. You know, it's too much. It's too overwhelming. I agree so much with everything you're saying, man. We were speaking the same language. That was one of the great things also about studying with Freddie is that he had very famous students, you know, Mark Schulman, in addition to, you know, Steve Smith, Neil Peart, and Dave Weckl. Um, Peart and Weckl studied with him after I did, or they went to him. But uh, he had a lot of other famous students, Mark Schulman and uh, 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 Joey Warrenker and uh, mm -hmm. Danny Yamamoto, um, Ian Wallace, Adam Nussbaum, um, you know, a lot of, lot of heavyweights, uh, John, uh, John Hernandez from Oingo Boingo, uh, a lot of, of course, a lot of West Coast guys, but he was out here on the East Coast as well, Annie, uh, uh, Joey Barron. Anyway, um, so it was really interesting. I mean, it was hard because I was kind of, you know, I was just a young nobody out of music school. And here he was this guy with all these great students. And so it was, I would walk out of the lesson kind of feeling like shit uh, because I sort of felt like, how am I ever going to get to the level that those guys are at? But at the same time, I walked out of every lesson feeling so inspired. It was the weirdest thing. I would feel like at the same time, more crappy and bad yep. and yet more inspired and excited. And I knew, well, he has these other students, so there must be, you know, stuff going on, you know, and it's the same thing. It's like, I gotta, I gotta get to the bottom of this and I'm willing to take the time that it takes. Well, and one of the things you have talked a lot about, which is a concept I'm very familiar with, is the whole concept of deliberate practice. And yeah. one of the things that I find is a problem in a lot of education is that they tend to teach what to learn 
right. but they don't teach how to learn. Yeah. And so the pro, so they'll go through and they'll say, here's the exercise that you need to do work on and come back next week and have it together. So you run through it and you run through it and it's not good. And you run through it. And it's still not good, but it's a little bit better than it was before. And then the next week they give you a new exercise and then you move on to the new exercise, but you never really finished the other exercise or when I was learning songs, one of the things I would always find is I would play through this whole song and there would be a section I'd get to that would fall apart and I get frustrated. And so I put the song on again and I would play through the whole song and then I would get to the section that was frustrating me and it would fall apart again. So I'd go back to the, and I would repeat this and because that's how I, right. I had, I had to learn the song. And what I started to realize was, I know the song. There are four measures in this song I can't play. So then what I started to do is that I would just take 10 minutes and I would run over the four measures and I would take it slow. And sometimes it was a matter of the reason I can't play this is that the sticking that I'm using is awkward. Let me find a different sticking approach maybe i'll use a double stroke rather than doing it as single strokes and that might be more comfortable for me and then i would analyze it and i would figure it out really slowly one piece at a time and i would just repeat the four bars then when that got comfortable i thought well i've spent five hours trying to learn a song that i can't learn when i just spent 10 minutes fixing the problem now i can play the whole song and and so for me the concept with deliberate practice is like you have to cut things down into small pieces and you have to focus on the one small element that's a challenge because the rest of the stuff is fine. And yeah. I, I love drum books. And so what I would find is I would get a drum book and I would say, okay, this week I'm going to get through this chapter in this book. That's what I'm concentrating. And I would get through no chapters and I wouldn't get anywhere. So now what I do is I might say, okay, there are four concepts that I want to work on and four books that I want to work on. I'm going to do three lines from each book. And that's all I'm going to do that week. And I run through those three lines. And then as soon as I run through these three lines, I move on to the next thing. And so I can accomplish more in 15 to 20 minutes a day of having a plan than I can in three hours of trying to cram all of these concepts in. And what I found is that by doing less with focus, I progressed five times faster than I ever did trying to run through everything. And so, and it made practicing joyful because I would, I would run through the exercise and then I would stop. And then I'd go on to the next one and then I would stop because I did what my plan was and I couldn't wait to get back into the practice room to do it again. When you yeah. when you try and do too much, you overwhelm yourself and the last thing you want to do is go back. So I think it's essential that students learn how to practice successfully and we're all different so what's going to work for me might not work for you or might not work for an adult versus a a kid you know kids like to play adults feel that if you can't if they can't do it perfectly they can't do it at all and you have to start changing their mindset so that you start to realize no it's about play and it's about enjoying the process. And so there's a lot of psychology behind the aspect of learning as well, too, which I think is a completely different podcast conversation yeah. that we can probably get into at some point, because I do want to yeah. be respectful of your time. It's been a really excellent conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on board. Um, I mean, that's the whole same whole idea about 
those five fundamentals is that if you can learn these basic motions, then whatever you're learning, you can break, if it's troubling you, you can break it down and fix it in terms of these five fundamentals. And it's, it's sort of like the analogy that I, that I like to use is that when I, because the very first podcast I ever did was about deliberate practice. <laughs> yes. And the analogy that I like to use is that most drummers, when they learn, they're like a ship that has a sail, but no rudder. Mm-hmm. So they go out on the sea and they're blown into this port and they get a bunch of stuff. And then they go back out on the sea and they're blown to this port and they get some stuff. And at the end of the day, they've got a bunch of stuff, but there's no, where are they going? And what does all the stuff they have? Does it all matter? Does it, is it work together? Does it mean anything? So with Freddie, it really put the rudder on the ship. So I began to have direction as far as what I was doing. Because most drummers, like you're saying, they learn essentially by just smashing their head into a wall enough times before they break through the wall, but it's totally inefficient. And another analogy I use similarly is that like, you know, what we're trying to do is build a high performance sports car. And so you take it on the track and you run it around. Well, you didn't get up your your totals, your time totals. You take it back and you got to pull out the part that isn't working and you take that part out and you put that part on the machine put it back in, then the whole sports car runs better. So it's, you know, very much similar things. But I think when drummers don't have a game plan as far as the how, then when they speak, they don't speak with a voice at all. And it just sounds like the first part of the sentence is in Chinese, the middle is in Greek, and the last part's in French. You know, it's like the audience hears them playing something, but they don't know what it means. You know, so it, it if we can begin to understand things in a with sort of a with a rudder with an overall concept of what are we trying to do to reach this goal of 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 hitting people and to 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 move in certain ways that have consistency whether we're playing punk rock or flamadiddles or slow or fast we can use these ideas and these motions to help us speak in all circumstances right? The grips are the same in all circumstances. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously, a big part of this is getting the grips to be really, really, really consistent, understanding them. So we can use, you know, the grips have been around. I mean, I laugh <laughs> when people talk about how there's no value in learning matched or traditional grip. It's like, are you out of your fucking mind? Yeah. Like these grips have been around for hundreds of years, and they worked when drummers were in a marching band and they worked when drummers were playing jazz and they work when drummers are playing metal it's like it doesn't it's not about oh well here in the 21st century there's no use for traditional grip anymore i i just makes my brain explode you know but the idea is that if we can really understand what the elements of the grip are and then how to apply them in terms of these fundamental motions now we're speaking with a consistent voice and we're moving in a way that's natural and easy and relaxed and then we're saying something in the historical mode of what our forebearers said you know I, but it's it's hard it takes a while to conceptualize that and when you're learning exercises you're so in the that mode but eventually i ideally as we lift the wool lift the veil people begin to have a bigger sense of what it is they're doing instead of just learning some freaking pattern. I agree a hundred percent. So yeah. for um, anyone interested in kind of learning more about you or getting in touch with you, what's the best way to connect? Uh, my website is always great, uh, which is just my name, danielglass.com. That's going to take you to the finding your golden groove course. If you're interested in that, if you want to learn more about my band, 
it'll take you to that. You know, all my gigs are there. I work all over. Um, I'm on the road all the time. I go to Europe every year. I do a five-day jazz intensive where we use a lot of these concepts of basic motions to just in five days, my goal is to get people swinging at a really nice level and to do that at a level that's very deep so that when they go play with somebody, they're not, again, I mean, jazz and patterns is a, a disaster most of the time because people are so focused on the book and the exercise and getting the independence together and they completely lose all aspects or all focus perspective on what the job is, you know, mm -hmm. which essentially at one time it was to make people dance. Jazz was was popular dance music. So anyway, we do all this, all these same concepts. Um, and what's nice about it is it doesn't matter what level the students are at because they all really benefit from learning the motions. So some of them are more advanced than others, but it doesn't matter because we get into the, the interdependence, the balance of the limbs, all that. So uh, we're next October already. We're we're just about to open registration for the third annual European Jazz Intensive, and people come from all over the world. A lot of Americans come, Europeans, obviously. The band, we're out playing around, a lot of gigs, and then the online course, it's all there on the website. So, DanielGlass.com. Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure we will carry on this conversation again. I know you said you're currently working on another book project, so maybe when that one's out, I'd love to have you back on the show again. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I did. I actually spent a, bu a bunch of time talking to Dom Famularo about that book. Um, it's still in the, in the works. But anyway, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. I wish you all the best and we'll connect again soon. So all right. You too, take man. care. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out. And let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.